Well, in contrast to the common spirit of Christmas, and you know what that is, right? He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, right? In contrast to that common spirit of Christmas, Scripture, of course, is not an instruction manual for how to be good for goodness sake, right? It is rather, it's a story, it's a a narrative history about a long journey, and thus the title of the Family Worship Guide. It's a a story about a long journey, a, a journey that's intended by God to invite us into knowing Him. And whatever daily changes or, or differences that might make in your particular life, that comes as a result of the knowing of the one who made you. And so in Luke chapter 1, which is where we'll be this morning, young Christians, as you listen to us, you young disciples, as you listen to the reading of this passage of Scripture beginning in verse 26, Listen and see if you can hear what are the, the two different long journeys that take place here. Two of them happen. Two different characters go on journeys. See if you can make note of who it is that goes on the journey and where do they go. Maybe even why they go there. Draw a picture if you want to or whatever might work best for you. See if you can identify these two long journeys. In the first half of chapter 1, Luke has already told us about a woman named Elizabeth and her very unexpected pregnancy. And the story that we're to read now is told within that time frame. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, then Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her, from 
the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us ears to hear and souls to believe your good news in this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Some months ago, there was widespread flooding in Colorado. You may remember the various stories, the pictures, the videos that came out of that. And one of those stories that made the the national news on NBC News was of a woman named Charlene de Herrera. She was driving home from work in her small sport utility vehicle, and she came upon a road, as so many of them were, that was rushing with floodwaters. And she made what is always seems to be the bad judgment call to think, well, I've, I've got an SUV, I can drive through that. So she began to drive through the water. But very quickly, the water began to lift her car off the pavement and sweep her down the, what was now a river and into deeper water. And her vehicle began to slowly sink. There were other people around who could see this happening, and they watched it happen expecting her to simply roll down the window, climb out, and swim back to safety. But she didn't do that because she could not swim. Therefore, she did not roll down the windows. She didn't try to open the door, which by now she couldn't have done because of the water pressure on the outside. She simply sat in the car and began to sink. So some men swam out to her in what was now probably about 10 feet deep of water, and they climbed on top of the car and began to bang on the windows, trying to break them to get her out, but they couldn't break the windows. And the car sank. It, it, it was totally submerged just under the surface of the water, and three men were out on top of the car in the water, continuing trying to break into the car somehow. And suddenly one of them reached down deep into the water and fished around grabbed hold of her arms and pulled her up to safety, and they swam her to shore. short time later, they towed the truck out of the water, and all the windows were still rolled up. The doors were slammed shut, and the questions began. How did she get out of the car? The man who pulled her up to the surface on the news, he was interviewed, and he simply smiled, and he said, I don't know. Something happened there that I can't explain to you. She got out of the car. I don't know how she did it. Of course, then the flood of online discussions began on the Internet trying to explain what must have happened. You know, of course, there had to be some reasonable explanation. Surely, by the time she was submerged, water filled the car, and she was able to then, with the equalized pressure, open the door, slide out, and then the door closed on its own, and she came out to safety. Maybe, you know, maybe that happened. Maybe there was some reasonable explanation according to the laws of physics that allowed her to get out of the car. I don't know. But the curious thing to me is, why the rush to explain it? Why the the sense of urgency to make sense of a seemingly miraculous rescue event? Why do we marvel at miracles? Why do we do that? I mean, why do we just, why, why do we hesitate to believe that they can happen. We marvel at them because they don't fit into our preconceived notions of reality. They don't fit into our belief system. They betray a belief system that we already have in place that says they can't happen, therefore they must not happen. They betray our worldview. It's already in place that disagrees with the idea of miracles. The Westminster Confession of Faith 
our statement of faith as a Presbyterian church addresses this matter when it says that God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of means. That is, God, who created the world and everything in it, including the laws of nature, the laws of physics and so forth that run the world in an orderly fashion, God ordinarily makes use of those means in His typical works of providence. But the confession continues. God is free to work without, above, and against those means at His pleasure. So the churchmen who gathered at the Westminster Assembly in the mid-1600s recognized what wise men and women have long known. We don't believe in miracles, unless you're an Auburn football fan. I mean, I had to get that in there somewhere. That was too obvious. Relieve the tension. We don't believe in miracles, do we? In our normal, everyday life, not because our minds are too great to accept such nonsense, but rather we don't believe in miracles because our souls are too small to wrap themselves around the redemption story in which we live and breathe and have our being. Luke starts his gospel account, his carefully researched historical account, by putting in parallel two very uniquely expectant mothers. One of them, Elizabeth, is unusual. The other one, Mary, is unprecedented. One of them, Elizabeth, is remarkable. The other one, Mary, is astonishing. One of them, Elizabeth, is unlikely. The other one, Mary, let's just say it, is downright impossible. Isn't it? And so Luke takes us on a journey into miracle to show that God can and does break into ordinary means to bring about an extraordinary grace. It's what God does. So we begin today to prepare ourselves for Christmas, a season which even our unbelieving culture shapes around our own inclination to marvel at things. You know, we marvel at the holiday light displays around the city, or we marvel at the stirring music that comes with it and the good food that we find on the table. We marvel at these things. We begin to prepare ourselves for Christmas today with a journey that should cause us to marvel at something far greater than all of those things, a miraculous gospel, one in which we receive a miraculous greeting. The first journey that you come to in this passage is right away. It's the angel Gabriel, right? Gabriel is one of only two angels that are actually named in Scripture. Michael, of course, is the other one, the archangel. And Gabriel, who presented himself to Zechariah in, earlier in Luke chapter 1 to explain Elizabeth's coming pregnancy, introduced himself to Zechariah saying, My name is Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That meaning simply that he's a very significant angel. He's not just your run-of-the-mill angel. In fact, John mentions him in Revelation uh, chapter 8, I believe, presumably being one of the seven angels who stand in the presence of God with the trumpets in hand. Gabriel had presented himself to Daniel some 500 years 
before. This was a very important angel, a very profoundly important character in the redemptive story of Scripture. This is a profound person presenting himself, journeying to visit a peasant woman. And he says to her this, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The laws of physics have no explanation for this. Why would the God of heaven send his right-hand angel, as it were, to bring such greetings to an insignificant person? Why would he do that? After all, who was Mary anyway? She was a common woman who was betrothed, that is, legally bound, engaged to be married to a very common, ordinary man. And what was this greeting that he gave to her? It was, you have found favor with God. Literally, hail Mary filled with grace. Not hail Mary full of grace as though she, God seeing, already being full of enough grace for God to do this work, chose her because of what now grace she could dispense to others. No, not that. But rather it's a passive word. Hail Mary, one who has been filled with grace. She receives it as would anyone else. Greetings, common woman, he says to her. God has chosen you by grace. And that's the miraculous message of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, it's very simple. God, who spoke all things into existence, who placed the man and the woman as his representatives, his vice regents in the garden, God who granted to them great gifts and opportunities to cultivate all of the creation that he had made, God who saw those people turn away from him, seeking after their own kingdoms that would only lead to death. God, infinite and yet confined by his own holiness and therefore having to pursue justice. And yet the merciful God who to accomplish that justice would give himself in the flesh. God, who requires righteousness of you and also provides it for you. This is the miraculous message of the gospel. This is grace, that God would embark on a long journey to do such great good for enemies. You know, Mary must have begun to wonder, why me? I mean... I'm just a teenage girl. She, I mean, she had to be 16, 17, 18 year olds. I, that's kind of typical for a woman getting married at that time. They were very young. She, why me? Why would this angel come to me? I'm a nobody in a no place in the world. Why me? And at some point, we all, we all have to consider, why would the Lord come to me? Why would God come and initiate this good news with me. Why would he come and greet me with such favor and grace? You know, it's easy for us to wonder how Mary must have felt and, and to ponder the words that she must have, have had. And songs have been written about such things. But what about the angel? You know, I, I'm kind of curious to know what the angel must have felt and thought and experienced during this journey that he took. After all, Peter, in, in his first letter later in the New Testament, explains some of the beauty of the redemptive story and peter makes this interesting little comment maybe you've heard it he says 
things into which angels long to look. Peter was just acknowledging to say that the redemptive story, the narrative of history, is so amazing in what God is doing by grace that even the angels long to look into it. They're curious. And here one of them, a very important one, gets a chance to step into the picture, to bring a greeting of grace to a nobody woman in a nowhere place. And he must have wondered, you know, when he went back to heaven and all the other angels surely must have been curious. I'm sure they greeted him at the heavenly door and said, Gabriel, tell us what you saw. What was it like? I mean, what did she say? What did you say to her? What, you know, what, what kind of thing did Gabriel say back to them? I mean, I kind of wonder, you know, he must have surely said, oh, you wouldn't believe it. They're so small and they're so weak and they're filthy. And they're not very smart, and they're afraid of things. I mean, she cowered away from me when she saw me. She didn't expect to see me. And these are the ones to whom God is extending grace. Guys, listen, now I know why it's grace. I mean, you've got to wonder what the angel had to say. This is the gospel to you and me. You are highly favored. This is the miraculous greeting that he gives to us. Now, I recognize that this story presents for the skeptical mind, at least a major problem, doesn't it? And, and we who have been going to church all our lives, the Bible's kind of normal to us. We read this and we think, oh yeah, an angel came and met this woman. He said this to her. And what's the next story? But, you know, let's don't miss the obvious here. There's an angel in the story. Okay? Who's seen an angel before? I mean, I haven't. And I would expect that the skeptical mind would think, okay, this, the greeting of grace, all this stuff, miraculous, whatever. Listen, there's an angel in the story and angels don't exist. Right? I mean, who's seen one? You can't prove that empirically. There's no scientific method that you can come about to say, all right, there's an angel that lives in Dallas, Texas. You can't do that. And so a skeptical mind is going to wonder. I saw a blogger recently who, who posted a comment saying, this is fa- fascinating and kind of funny. He said, if one person has an imaginary friend, we call him crazy. But if lots of people have the same imaginary friend, we call it a religion. I can appreciate the honesty in a sense, and yet the dishonesty of not recognizing the logical ends of the path that this person is on. Because the assumption is to say God must be imaginary. Why? Because I can't prove him. I can't prove that he exists. My scientific method, I can't see him, I can't experience him with my own senses, therefore he must not be, therefore there can't be angels. But... As you go down the road of cause and effect, eventually, eventually, as you go down that road, you get to a point where you have to recognize that the miraculous thing is that anything exists at all. Nothing should exist apart from the fact that God spoke it into being. Apart from the miraculous, there is no conversation to be had. And Christmas is a journey that should cause us to marvel it's something far greater than angels. Don't get hooked up on the angels there. It should cause us to marvel at something far greater, a miraculous gospel, one in which we rejoice in a miraculous coming. That is, after all, what Advent is. You know, you know the word Advent means the coming. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Advent season is us looking forward to what? The coming of the Lord. And so we rejoice in a miraculous coming. Again, the words of the angel. He says, Mary, receiver of grace, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, listen, that is loaded, isn't it? I mean, he just said to her a ton of weighty stuff, didn't he? And here she is, a young girl, drinking this in. She must have missed some of it. He just said to her, you're going to have a baby. She's not pregnant yet. She's not yet even married. Okay? That had to strike her as a little odd. And then he said to her, you're going to name him Jesus. The the name means Yahweh is salvation. That's pretty heavy. She's not just going to name him Colin. She's going to name him Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. And then he says to her, He's going to be the Son of God. And not only that, God Himself is going to give Him the throne of David. All right? I mean, she must have exploded in her head by now. The throne of David? The boy that's going to be born from my womb? And then He says, or even more, He says, He's going to have a kingdom without end. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. All right? Did you miss all that stuff? The angels gave her huge stuff. And Mary, this is really kind of funny. She's sort of got an ace up her sleeve. This, this is a very rational girl, okay? What does she say to him? Uh, Mr. Angel, how's this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's, sort of, it's probably what somebody like me would have said. All right. That's all kind of cool, but there's one little problem, okay? Maybe angels don't understand this. I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? And you've got to appreciate that. Forget the big stuff. There's one little problem in the way. C.S. Lewis, in, in his fascinating book, Miracles, wrote this. He said, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became a man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And then Lewis goes on to explain it like this. He says, We know that the sun exists, not because at noonday we can clearly see it, because we can't clearly see it, but rather we know it exists because by it we can see everything else. He says the incarnation is sort of the same way. It's the central miracle in the narrative history of all of existence. By it, we can see everything else. Everything else makes sense because God became a man. In the narrative of creation, this is the climax of history so far. God himself undertook the journey in such a way as this. And so, verse 35, Gabriel answers her skeptical question, and he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The angel trumps her ace. He says to her, Mary, you're a bright young woman, and that's a good question, but there's something that you don't understand, young woman. God himself made you, and if he made you, He can choose at His pleasure to break in through the ordinary means and do something miraculous. The Holy Spirit will come to you 
and give you a child in your womb. This child will be called holy because he will be the very son of God. Though born in the flesh out of your flesh, he will be the son of God. Now, perhaps it's not so strange to the 21st century mind to think in terms of man having some element of deity about him. In our our culture, our world, 21st century, we tend to think of ourselves often fairly highly. And so it's not too difficult for a skeptical mind to think, okay, so there's some deity in me too. There, I, there must be something profound, significant. About, and that's true. In, in a sense, we bear the image of God. And yet the hard thing, I think, for a 21st century skeptical mind is to think that God should take on flesh. I mean, why should the higher one condescend to the lower one and become as the lower one, as a child? in a sense, because people don't do that so well nowadays, do they? So why would God do that? This is central to Christian theology. You have to understand. There are two natures of Christ. He is both Son of the Most High and Son of David. He is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is both fully and completely at the same time. The Nicene Creed, which we'll recite together in a moment, says it this way. It says, We believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, and yet who for us men was made flesh. Now, neither Matthew nor Luke, the two gospel writers that give some details about the virgin birth, neither of them concern themselves really with the remarkable nature of the birth itself. They just kind of assume it. Rather, they consume themselves with the majestic fulfillment of redemption that comes about through this miraculous birth. God, having seen the head of creation, the man and the woman, led into and willfully going into ruins by the devil, the deceiver who led them there, God could have at that point simply conceded defeat. He could have said, man, the devil got those two. Forget them, I'm going to start over. He could have done that. But you know if he had done that, do you know what would have happened? He would have ceased to be God. If God were to concede defeat, then he's not God. Because someone else is God over and above him who gained victory. God couldn't have conceded defeat at that point. Rather, God, confined by his own holiness, required justice. And so he set about a plan to accomplish that. Forgiveness always involves pain. You know that? I mean, you've forgiven someone before, and you realize that you can say the words, I forgive you. What we often say is, oh, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Forget about it. We're good. What we really should just say is, you're forgiven. I forgive you. But then there's always pain. The pain comes when you try to forget about it you have a hard time forgetting to to stop remembering the pain that they brought upon you. You want revenge upon them. Even after you've said, I forgive you, you still in your heart of hearts want some revenge, and you have to fight yourself to let go of that. There's always pain involved, and God entered into forgiveness in a very painful way. He gave himself. He became a child. Now, the truly Reformed position on this matter, the Presbyterian way of thinking on this, to to be clear about it, is to say, 
God did not simply at that point decide, I'm not going to concede defeat. I've got to make another plan. No, he didn't do that. He had a plan all along. And a part of it included the deceiver being allowed to do what he did. Therefore, God using the sin of the deceiver sinlessly so that then he could embark on this majestic redemptive story of mercy and grace to display his beauty and his glory to all of creation. That's really the truly reformed way of putting it. Either way you put it, the coming of God requires two natures. Two natures. Son of God and Son of Man. If Jesus had not been the Son of David, if he would not been the Son of Man, then he could not have fulfilled the law of righteousness that God required of man. If he would not been the Son of Man, then he couldn't have stretched his arms out on the cross to endure death. He couldn't have done it. On the other hand, if he'd not been the Son of God, he could not have stood in the place of so many. A man can only stand in the place of one. Only God himself could stand in the place of all. Therefore, he must have come as both. Christmas is a journey that should cause us to marvel at such a coming. And so to marvel at a gospel, one through which we also rest We rest in a miraculous blessing. Mary is the one who undertakes the other journey in verse 39. If you notice that, with her news of a child to come and knowing that news of her relative, having heard it from the angel himself, she arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She embarked on a journey to go and visit her older relatives. And now Mary was... Like I said, a teenager. She was a young girl. And surely she was full of uncertainty and and all kinds of wonderment at the news that she now had in hand from this angel. Sure, she had believed. I mean, Luke tells us she believed what the angel had said to her. And yet she's just a young one. She'd not yet known a man. She was still a virgin, as she so astutely pointed out to the angel. What that meant for her was not comedy, but rather tragedy. For her, that meant that she would be, just in the terms of society at the time, it meant scandal, divorce, a breaking of her betrothal to Joseph, and total destitution and poverty for her because a single woman, a child born out of wedlock, that wasn't normal. And for her, this meant lots to fear. And therefore, God grants her the strength of another, Elizabeth is her older relative. I don't know exactly how she was related, but she was older. And when Mary arrives, you you saw the text, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth was, feeling the baby in her own womb leap for joy. That's, That's a marvelous miracle right there. And Elizabeth, feeling that baby and being filled with the, the Holy Spirit, began to speak blessings to her young relative. And what did she say? Blessed are you among women, Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed am I that the mother of my Lord should come to see me. Blessed is she who believed what was spoken to her from the Lord. What does it mean to have somebody bestow blessing upon you? Do you know? What does that mean to receive blessing? You know, the ancient Israelites had a a blessing that was passed down through the generations that's in Scripture, coming from the priest Aaron as God had given it to him. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. The ancient Israelites had known this blessing for generations. Hundreds and hundreds of years they'd known this blessing. They knew what it was to receive the blessing of God, to have the strength of another fill their soul. That's what a blessing is. To have a stronger one fill you with their strength, even if it comes at an unexpected time and in an impossible way. A few years ago, Mary and the kids and I drove to the East Coast in the summertime, as we will do once a year or so. It's a long journey itself, traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to North Carolina and all the states in between. And and as we went, as you will do on a road trip, you find games to play. So we were playing the license plate game. What license plates can you find from all the different states? And and we actually have a little board game where you can flip over the license plates and keep track of the, the ones you found. And we covered, you know, eight or nine states, some of them, most of them twice as we went. And we found pretty much all the license plates at least once or twice or five or ten times. Even Alaska, even, even Hawaii, you know, in, in Alabama, you find Hawaii's license plates. Now, and that's as much of a miracle as the virgin birth. I'm not sure how it works to get it. But anyway, we found them all except for one, Washington, D.C. Now, I'm not sure that I consider that a state, but they do have their own license plate. And they're on the license plate game. So it was there. We had to find it. We hadn't found it. Nine or ten states, some of them twice, thousand, thousand miles of traveling. We were driving back home, passing through East Texas, just a hundred miles from Dallas. And we came driving up to a rickety old car that was driving 45 miles per hour on the interstate. And lo and behold, Washington, D.C. Sort of a picture of Washington, D.C., a rickety old car driving for. And there it was, and we broke out in family celebration in the car. There it is, our finally one. Flip it over, and now we're done. The license plate game's over. Even when you don't expect it, the most unexpected place, even when you've traveled thousands of miles and you've not yet seen it, impossible, there it is. I mean, who knows what Mary had comprehended about Israel's journey through the ages. I don't know. She was a young teenager. I don't know how much theology she had in her head. You know, I don't expect that when the angel came, she was waiting and said, oh, I knew this was coming because I've read all the scriptures and I know all the prophecies and yada, yada. J. Gabriel's your name. She didn't do that. Right? I don't know how much she had in her head or in her heart to receive. She couldn't have comprehended all of redemptive history. Elizabeth and Zechariah, on the other hand, knew some stuff. They were older. Zechariah was a priest. He had been silenced by the angel in the temple for nine months until the baby was born. They knew redemptive history. Surely they knew that Israel's journey was centuries in duration. They knew that Israel had covered thousands of miles figuratively as a family. They knew the weariness of waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament that God would come and be with His people, live with them, walk with them. They would be His people. He would be their God. They knew that those things were long in coming, that they had been waiting for them to the extent of wondering would they ever happen. And now at an unexpected time, in an impossible way, Yahweh came down. And Mary, filled with the strength of another, 
saying, My soul is filled with joy as I sing to God my Savior. You have looked upon your servant. You have visited your people. And holy, holy is your name. By definition, we can't explain the miracles. We can't. But by grace, we're called to receive, to rejoice, and to rest in the good news of the King who has come. Hallelujah. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us grace to believe. Give us eyes to see and hearts to trust that your word is true, that indeed you have come by grace to greet us, to fill us with your strength and to give us life in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.